Welcome to the second episode of Scaling with Data, where I speak with leaders in business and private equity to learn the not-so-obvious details about how they scale their business. My name is Sean Staggerwald, co-founder of Molar2, and today I'm speaking with Ty Hagler. Ty is the founder and CEO of Trig Innovation, a design, innovation, and marketing firm that's put out a ton of really impressive work over the last few years. They do anything from the design and prototyping of medical devices to executing a complete brand overhaul for an up-and-coming brewery to leading product teams in their ideation sessions at major corporations. One of the main reasons I wanted to have Ty on our show is that he's got a great story. He's a former Olympic hopeful turned founder CEO of a completely remote, fast-growing design organization. He's also one of the most well-read managers I've met, and it shows through his data-driven system of checks and balances for his team. This system allows him to keep his remote team charging toward their goals at an incredible speed. We started off responding to a uh, request for quote. We were you know, one of four uh, innovation design firms that responded to the opportunity. Um, and so we, you know, kind of when you go through the competitive bid process, you find out that you're up against, um, you know, say like one of the top tier design firms, kind of that would be a competitor to say like IDEO or Frog Design. And so, you know, we uh, were pretty excited to be kind of, you know, at least uh, competing against a firm of that caliber. And um, so rather than award the project to one of us, the client decided to split the, the project in half and uh, basically run our two firms head to head. It was just one of the coolest case studies you could have, right? I mean, like, here's this kind of scrappy virtual company that, um, you know, they probably split it up because, you know, we were yet an unknown entity versus, you know, hiring IBM, right? Nobody gets fired for hiring IBM. So, you know, they took a blended strategy and, you know, uh, you know like split it up between IBM and the upstart. And um, so we went through and ran this process. Um, at the end of the day, you know, we... Uh, the client told us that, um, you know, we were easier to manage, that we, the tools we were using were more effective to get to the outcomes they wanted to see. Um, you know, we were, the research process that we used delivered more effective insights. And um, the uh, new product concepts that we came up with when, after having been filtered through the uh, quantitative customer research process um, were as high a quality or if not better than the top tier design firm. So, I mean, you know, we were smarter, faster, and cheaper than a top tier design firm. And it was really cool to get that chance to prove ourselves to a you know, pretty major corporation. What we learn in this episode is that your company's culture is arguably the most important factor to your success. High turnover, misaligned values, or worse, issues like what we've seen at Uber, can lead to your company's downfall. Your culture is intentional. It's not something that happens organically, and data, believe it or not, plays a huge part in that intentionality. Now, I'm obviously biased when it comes to data collection and analysis, so it's important to note that one thing we learned today is that, in some cases, automating the collection of data can do more harm than good.
Welcome to Scaling with Data. I'm Sean Steigerwald, co-founder at Malartu.co, and your host today. Volts, the fastest boat on the water, looks like he's heading for gold. It's Volts who looks like he's going to take it. He leads, and Noshkin really battling. Dostal will get the silver. It's gold for Spain, silver for the Czech Republic, and bronze for Russia. That's the sound of Olympians competing in the sport of flatwater kayaking as they near the finish line. That's a sound our guest today is very familiar with. I can say with pure confidence that Ty Hagler can paddle a kayak faster than anyone I know. I was a Olympic hopeful in the sport of flatwater kayaking for about 10 years. Um, so did that from high school through to college and then after college. Um, and it, so it was you know, it was pursuing sport while I was going. And so that gave me, you know, kind of those first opportunities for learning entrepreneurship. So started a college club at Georgia Tech in flatwater kayaking. And um, the neat thing about that process is that you, um, you know, you get kind of those early experiences of entrepreneurship because you, um, uh, you don't have to worry about payroll or, you know, kind of a revenue standpoint. It's just like, getting people excited about a vision, planning fun events, and then just kind of building community. And so um, just like those experiences gave me some, you know, just some chance at like understanding how to, you know, like work with people and kind of test out my leadership style and all of that, which, um, you know, before it had been pretty introverted kid. It, um, uh, so it, it was like early sport kind of really helped me also kind of learn kind of the discipline and pragmatism. I mean, like you get a pretty hardcore feedback loop of you either, you know, do well at a race, you improve on your time or you don't. I mean, there's no kind of arguing with what your time was in a race. And so, um, yeah, that kind of it helped me understand kind of that balance between, you know, the art of design and um, making things that look cool, but also the pragmatism of, you know, is this going to achieve the results I want? And if not, what do I need to change in order to get to an end result that makes sense? And so kind of that balance of creativity, exploring, and then pragmatism has been kind of a foundational value that is expressed in our core values. Um, so oddly enough, so uh, kayaking intersected with design um, where um, did well enough at a world championships to qualify for a Olympic sponsorship with Home Depot, where they, you know, pulled me on as a uh, um, sponsored athlete, uh, where I could come and work in the stores, wound up working in corporate, and being a part of helping build the internal product design capabilities um, after having pitched a few ideas for doing new product development. Um, and so was learning how to navigate of, you know, kind of at an early part of my career, it was like just after graduating from college, um, was, you know, kind of working at a pretty high level within Home Depot and then also trying to keep up with Olympic dreams. And so um, uh, wound up uh, kind of going back and forth on that and, um, you know, would be traveling in the summer, going to world championship events, and then also trying to keep up with, um, you know, keeping up with samples and, you know, making design happen. And so it was, a uh, kind of a, it was a, definitely a, a busy time. And, um, you know, so eventually decided to hang up the paddle, um, continued to work with Home Depot for about two years. And then, um, 
Uh, my wife and I moved up here to North Carolina, and um, and then uh, it was a great opportunity to go back to school, get my MBA, and um, and then start uh, start building Trig. When most people think of sales, they think of a smooth-talking, attractive salesperson, maybe selling a car or working the phones on a busy sales floor. Like many founders, Ty thought the art of selling would be something that came naturally to him, whether growing his customer base or growing his team. And as many founders learn, it's not nearly that easy. I mean, when I started Trig and even going through the MBA program, I mean, the the thing that I did not have any skills in, but was absolutely essential to growing the business was being, having a healthy perspective on what it means to be in a sales role. And I mean, I think no matter you know, who you are, um, you're always going to be in some kind of position where you need to persuade somebody else to your vision and where you're going in order to just get them on board um, to believe in you that you can deliver on what you promise. And so um, really had no idea how to do sales getting the business started and uh, probably missed a lot of opportunities as a result, um, kind of especially in those early days. But um, you know, it was through the mentoring of some, some good friends and, uh, and good people who, um, you know, kind of uh, that taught me a sales approach that continue to use today, which is a relationship-based, high-trust, consultative approach, um, where uh, you don't want to um, uh, sell somebody on more than they need or less than they need. Need to try to fig- meet them where they are and propose solutions that absolutely make sense for what they need, and um, and then try to adapt. Um, you know what you can do to make sure that you're taking care of the person who's trusting you, and and just make sure that you're delivering it. I mean, that's kind of foundational to any brand is um, you know make a promise, keep a promise, and build trust over time. And it's just something that matched my values. It's not kind of the used car salesman, you know, like use uh, manipulative te- tricks to, um, you know, kind of sell a, a lemon, but, you know, building, you know, long-term relationships over time by, you know, just using that consultative pro- pro- approach to uncover needs, help people think through the problems that they have, and, um, and then, you know, come up with solutions that they're going to be thrilled to get and always give people more value than what they're paying for. And, um, you know, if, as long as you can do that, that's um, a model and a process that, um, you know, has been our, that was my biggest learning going into it, and it's been something that, um, you know, we've got great relationships with our clients today because we maintain that, you know, high trust, make a promise, keep a promise approach. With a headcount of 10, Trig is a small firm and one of the smaller firms we have on this show. As you heard from the opening segment, just because they're small doesn't mean they can't beat out the big guys. From his early days as an athlete, Ty knew he didn't want to build a business for the sake of being big. He wanted to build something great. If growth came as a result of that, so be it. But he's always focused on being great first. There's a community that I'm involved with that the big believer. So uh, Bo Burlingham uh, wrote a book called Small Giants, um, which is about companies that choose to be great instead of big. And so had found out about the book. Um, I don't know, I'm kind of constantly looking for books. And so had found out about the book and then like just gravitated right towards it. Um, and, um, and 
pretty quickly realized there was a community around that. So there's the small giants community. And um, uh, so it's, it's a values-based, uh, culture-first uh, kind of leadership philosophy. And um, so uh, I've been a part of their virtual peer group, um, which is kind of similar to Vistage or kind of any of those other kind of uh, um, CEO roundtable groups. But, um, you know, where other groups might be more focused on, you know, revenues first and growth at all costs, this group is emphasizing and teaching, you know, people and values and culture first, and then growth is nice, growth comes secondary to that. And that just kind of matches my experiences as an athlete is that, you know, there's, you invest so much time in pursuing an Olympic dream. And when you meet some of the Olympians that, um, you know, there's, I guess there were two different types of Olympians you might meet. There's some Olympians who like the first thing they, when you meet them, the first thing they talk about is I've got this medal that I won back in the eighties and they're, they're kind of their identities wrapped up around that. And like, like, man, they, uh, they got that medal and that they're still hanging on to it. And then and it's, it's awesome. It's like, you know, I wouldn't disparage it, but um, you also meet Olympians who like, they would not bring up their experiences unless you like knew about it and directly asked them about it. And for them, it was much more about the process and the love of it and enjoying it. And I think as you look at those two different types, I mean, it's those people who I think did it because of their heart for it and the love of the discipline and the process that um, I think those are the ones we want to try to emulate. So it's, you know, kind of people in process first and then results, long-term results naturally follow. At the core of anything great is the people who built it. People invest in people, people buy from people. It always comes down to people. Because of this, Ty puts tremendous weight on building a culture of transparency, accountability, and work-life balance that came as a result of a need in his own life. When you start a company, it's kind of your chance to define paradise. And for me, um, you know, like within my family, so my wife has a pretty structured uh, uh, you know, work set up. And so we've got three kids. And so, um, you know, as was, you know, for a while there, it was just like, all right, I'm going to be the flexible one, uh, to be able to make our family dynamics work. And then as the company kept growing and we kept adding people, it was like, well, we want to retain this. And so, um, I've had the, you know, flexibility to be able to, you know, like, um, uh, pick up my son from the bus and, you know, be there for my kids. Um, and then at the same time, you know, be, um, you know, building this culture where there's other people who want to follow the same, um, same kind of work-life balance. And so um, it's just made it so that it's very family-friendly. And, um, you know, so uh, we, um, you know, we really, uh, you know, have recruited like-minded people who may be in a similar situation to my own families or, um, you know, really kind of interpret it however they like. And so it's, um, uh, you know, we're, you know, big on emphasizing cultural fit as we're, as we're bringing on new people. The biggest lesson I've learned from Ty that I think other great managers and leaders would agree on is that culture is intentional. You have to be deliberate about what you expect from employees from the interview to their onboarding to your weekly meetings. This goes for all companies, whether you're working together in an office or in Trigg's case, working together remotely. Culture wasn't something that I thought about much as kind of was getting started, but then 
and then, you know, with the, you know, first employee, I mean, it was, the culture was like, we'd hang out and just kind of talk about like what the problems were that we were facing. And then we added a third, third employee. And then I'd have a conversation with one and then a conversation with the other, and then they'd have a conversation, but there was no like, uh, intentionality to it. And then by the time we added a fourth, I mean, actually at like three people, we started like have, we were forced to have a weekly meeting just to make sure that everybody was on the same page. And it was like, you know, for me, it was just groaning because like, ah, oh God, we've got to like, you know, have a weekly staff meeting. Come on. We're like, we're getting big and corporate. But then, I mean, now like I, like I go through withdrawal if we haven't had that. And I feel like I'm not in touch with, with everybody. And so it's, um, um, the cultural aspects of who we are and, um, you know, how we bring on new people and, you know, how we respond to, you know, uh, challenges and crises and issues, um, you know, is, you know, like the, there's inflection points and key decisions that you make that, you know, are kind of the, the, the foundations of your culture. And I think the, as time has gone on, um, it's become more and more of something that in, uh, takes up my mental energy because it's, you know, I've just seen it as being so important. I mean, um, you know, companies, you know, you can certainly, um, ignore culture and there's, you know, plenty of, um, you know, I guess, uh, uh, startups and, you know, investors that say that culture doesn't matter, but, you know, what you wind up having is kind of this, um, I don't know, this deficit in culture that if you neglect it, then, you know, it starts to create some, you know, some pretty ugly monsters that if you're not addressing them, that will, uh, come and surface. And, you know, you, there's a lot of conversations now about toxic cultures within some of the Silicon Valley startups that, um, you know, like the financial targets all look great, but then, um, you know, the ethical behavior of employees within the company was, you know, like, uh, just really wound up, uh, detracting from the vision and, um, uh, and you start having uh, employee turnover. I mean, like the, you know, I think employee turnover is one of the, the biggest single causes for companies to, um, you know, really underperform because the, you know, if you, if you've got people who stay with the company over the long haul, then you've just got this continuity of, um, understanding and, um, you know, knowledge of, uh, the, you know, your customer base and, you know, what the history is there and those relationships are so important. And then when you lose somebody, then, um, you know, that, that, that has long-term costs of, you know, just, you know, having, um, uh, you know, just missing out on, uh, who those people are, what they've brought to the table and, you know, um, all of the, um, you know, the insights and wisdom and intellectual property that they have just kind of within their own, um, capabilities and insights and personality. And so, you know, it, it's kind of, it, I think culture is what guards against, um, I guess having a high employee turnover and, um, you know, it's just something that particularly in a service business, you know, we, we want to make this someplace where people would choose to have their careers here, um, you know, for as long as it makes sense for them. New employee onboarding is your first chance to establish your company culture. This is a huge moment that most managers in their early days overlook as an organic process, when in fact, it takes a lot of thought and attention to get it right. One of our uh, strategic initiatives over the past six months was, um, so we 
in a pretty short time period, brought on uh, three new people. And um, uh, I, I did not do a good job onboarding them. Um, <laughs> um, and fortunately, they're... Um, uh, you know, they're very understanding and kind of, you know, pointed that out to, to me. And we have, have a, fortunately, we have a good feedback system in place. And so, um, so, uh, so some of our team members made that one of their uh, strategic priorities to improve our onboarding process. And so with our uh, latest team member to come on board, uh, he was our guinea pig for this new onboarding process. And so, um, whereas before, um, you know, I think I would just sit down with people and try to go through stuff quickly with them and then, um, and didn't really do a good job of introducing a new person to the rest of the team. Now we've got a week long process that people go through where, um, you know, each team member is assigned a topic to go through the new hire with. And um, it's a scheduled, um, you've got, you know, two hours with this person, you've got two hours with this person, and I'm supposed to walk through each of the kind of exciting and cool stuff we're going through so that um, when a new person comes on board, they know who to go approach and talk to um, if an issue comes up and they know where the resources are and how to find stuff and what the cultural norms are and everything. When I talk to different managers, I always want to hear about the tools they use to do their jobs. What are the pickaxes and shovels to their operation? Especially considering Trig's remote nature, these tools play a vital role in their success. You know, we're big fans of Slack. Um, in fact, we, uh, it's, you know, Slack has a sneaky pricing model where um, <laughs> they, uh, you know, your first, what, 10,000 messages are free. And so, you know, like, you basically, you get your whole team excited about it and into it. And then, and then they start hiding your messages from you um, after you've gotten, like, switched. Like, we've, our email usage has cut down dramatically because most of our conversations uh, happen in Slack. And so, um, you know, by the time, um, you know, we got, uh, we used up our 10,000 messages and we started needing to reference old stuff, then, like, it pretty much, like, all right, fine, take the money because <laughs> we're just not going to switch. Um, but, no, we... Uh, use Slack a fair amount. Um, we're using um, a battery for our virtual ideation sessions and um, kind of general um, kind of project documentation for kind of a creative standpoint. Um, we're using Asana for our uh, task tracking and project management software. Um, and let's see, I mean, kind of the standard Google Docs and whatnot. And then um, put a plug-in shout out here from Malartu. We've been uh, just today, I introduced the team to the, uh, the Malartu platform and the, um, uh, the new tools that are there, and we're going to start rolling that out because I think um, we've gotten it to a point where we're going to switch from using Google Sheets to using the Malartu uh, platform to be able to handle our uh, weekly scorecard. And so, uh, anyway, you guys are doing an awesome job there, and um, it's exciting to see that come together as a tool for us to be able to track our core metrics. A little over a year ago, Ty introduced me to a relatively new operations framework for entrepreneurial businesses called EOS, which stands for Entrepreneur's Operating System. This system comes from the book Traction by Gino Wickman. I'll include a link to the book at our blog at malartu.co backslash blog. I'm a huge believer in EOS. We use it every day at Malartu, and it's the foundation of our company culture of transparency and accountability. Many operating partners at PE firms we speak with or work with swear by the system. For Ty, the story is no different. 
We've been self-implementing the EOS process um, for, what, six quarters now? And, um, and that's been something that has um, you know, really added critical structure at a time when you know, things were start- the wheels were kind of starting to fall off. And so, um, what, I guess a year and a half ago or so, we had gone from four people to five people. And for whatever reason, that fifth person just was um, whatever kind of informal fly by the seat of the pants style of management that I had was just not working anymore. I was, um, you know, repeating myself and there were no processes in place. And so, um, you know, as a part of bringing on that new hire, um, you know, really was looking for a process, had several clients recommend traction to me. And so, you know, at first I just bought the book and put it up on a shelf and like this seems obvious and it's, it's simple on purpose because it's, they make, basically they've boiled down complex corporate strategy and, and um, organizational systems and brought it down to a level that's simple enough that um, a entrepreneurial organization could implement it and, and everybody could understand it and not have their eyes roll into the back of your head as you're kind of talking about the nuances of um, um, say like specific KPIs when you're barely trying to get everybody to understand what a, you know, a SWOT analysis might be. And so, um, so that traction process has been really healthy for us because it's, um, we've had to formalize a accountability chart where, um, you know, everybody understands the roles that they're in. And, you know, at the time, you know, I had not done a good job of uh, delegating and elevating. Um, and so we, you know, went through and built an accountability chart, gave uh, you know, team members the opportunity to step up and take on leadership roles. And that's been really exciting because um, it, it really increased the engagement and the excitement and um, you got everybody involved with taking a, taking a, getting a sense of, uh, you know, like the, of ownership and the outcomes that, you know, we're all in this together and um, that what you have to contribute really matters. And so um, it's also helped out the, you know, we follow the discipline of uh, creating quarterly rocks where um, these are um, kind of working on the business strategic priorities that can be accomplished within a three month time period. And so as kind of a creative team, we're constantly coming up with, hey, this is the next cool big thing we should work on. And so, and I'm, I'm the worst offender at this. And so um, I'm constantly, you know, saying, hey, wouldn't this be cool if, and um, <laughs> then the team has full license to say, well, maybe that should be a rock for next quarter. And, you know, it, it's a nice check and, you know, making sure we're not overwhelming everybody with, um, you know, all the possibilities of what we could work on, but, you know, saving all these ideas for new priorities to work on until a quarterly meeting, we then down select to these are the top three to five priorities that each individual is going to work on for the next quarter. And uh, it just gives us focus so that we're, you know, building a 10 year plan, a three year plan, a one year plan, and then uh, boiling that down into quarterly rocks that um, helps to achieve that vision. Because we're virtual, we use that level 10 meeting to be kind of a cultural cornerstone for us where we spend, you know, the first 30 minutes or so just catching up on life and, you know, like how everybody's personal weekend went and like, what's, what's a major event that happened. Whereas I think, you know, within the format, they maybe spend five or 10 minutes on that. And I think it's, um, 
you know, it's a chance for everybody to get together and, and just reconnect and, and um, make sure we're all getting to know each other well. So it's, um, uh, that's been one of our big modifications to it. And, um, you know, I mean, like, I think if you do the organizational checkup, last we did it, we were at a 75%. So, um, you know, we kind of pick and choose as we go based on the, you know, what we're uh, needing. But, I mean, I think one of the most valuable disciplines out of that was the scorecard process. Um, which, um, you know, we started off with that and just like, just trying to pick like KPIs to follow week to week. Um, you know, there's numbers that, you know, like you, you're forced to every week jot down, like, you know, what are some of the numbers that you want to track? And then over time, there's numbers that, um, you know, maybe you think are important at the outset, but then as you start tracking them, then you realize they're not that valuable. And then you add new numbers in because, you know, your priorities shift and that winds up being your, your core focus. Culture and data are typically juxtaposing ideas. Most people don't think of a team looking at a data set or a spreadsheet as a team building activity. As I mentioned to Ty, we build a culture of transparency and playing as a team at Malartu and how we deal with issues each week. We define an issue we're having. We discuss if this is an issue worth solving this week. And if so, the person who owns that particular goal leads a conversation about how we might fix it as a team. Everything is on the table each week, working through problems transparently as one group. You know, it's like that old um, quote that um, you you can't, uh, manage what you can't measure and, um, you know, and be careful what you measure cause it'll get managed. Um, so, you know, there's some things that were kind of a, a rabbit hole we went down. I mean, we spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, organic search. And so, and we spent a lot of time like watching this number we had of like, you know, how many keywords are we ranking for? And we started having that number just kind of, you know, go up and up and up, but we weren't actually getting the right keywords ranking in the right direction. And so we wound up abandoning that and spending more time on newsletter subscribers, which was, you know, our chance to build a relationship with, uh, with people through the content we're producing and not so much on, you know, any, you know, given number, any given volume of content we're putting out there. So, um, you know, those numbers shift around based off of like, uh, to try to match what it is you're actually trying to accomplish. And especially in a, you know, a virtual environment in which we're prizing work-life balance. So you've got a lot of perks in this environment, a lot of freedom. And so with that needs to come accountability. And the, and really this scorecard and data process is, you know, really our chance to um, keep score and understand where we are, how we're doing and hold each other accountable. And, not from a authoritative standpoint, but from a, like, we all made commitments to each other. And again, you, you brought that up as a great point, right? That like, um, you know, we all sit around and I mean, we're virtual, so we're making promises to each other. We're not necessarily looking each other in the eye, but we're, um, you know, expressing, this is what I'm going to do and this is how I'm going to accomplish it. And, um, you know, I know I've got to come back to you guys next week and tell you whether or not this rock I'm working on is on track or off track. And, it's also a chance for people to ask for help. Um, you know, that's, I think, one of the, the great things about it is, I mean, like, we're kind of constantly shifting people around from project to project. And, um, you know, if somebody's light on work and another person is overburdened on work and, like, needs help accomplishing one of their rocks, then it's a chance to ask for help and 
um, you know, get support from the team. So it's, you know, it's maintaining that culture of transparency and, um, um, you know, to the degree that we can kind of, uh, and kind of an open book within the team so that, you know, there's no excuse making that's happening. It's just, this is the reality. This is what I was able to accomplish. And, um, you know, you're either, you know, like, uh, getting kudos for having done a great job or getting support from your team to figure out how to, how to help accomplish it. We often preach systems like EOS and tools like the Malarty platform for establishing the right metrics to track and bringing that data into one place. But we also recognize the value is in what you do with this data, not necessarily just how you consume it. What decisions will be made so we can do better? What strategies are working? What isn't working? How you work with the data, as Ty explains, is as important as how you captured it. It's an interesting concept. So you're... I don't know if uh, Charles Duhigg coined the term, but it's where I first uh, got exposed to it. But um, so it was in his book, uh, Smarter, Faster, Better. Um, it's like one of his later chapters. And um, so the idea about data disfluency is that um, you could have a perfect dashboard that, you know, like you are passively receiving all of this information where you're getting access to, you know, kind of the critical numbers that, you know, are involved with your organization and, and it be ineffective for you that um, you're, you're, because you're passively receiving it, you're not having to change your behavior as a result of that information. And so, the principle of data disfluency is that it's this paradox of because you have um, had to work with the data and manipulate it in order to make sense of it, that you're much more likely to change your behavior and actually get meaningful value out of the data as a result. And so, I mean, I, I guess I tend to be a little more analytical than most designers. And so I tend to spend a little more time with the data. And I've just found that like, there's so many great insights that come out of playing with the data and looking at it and, you know, like kind of cutting it up from a different perspective. And um, or even, you know, with our customer research, we both do, we do both qualitative and quantitative customer research. And so as you go through even like some of the customer survey data and you um, get a chance to really dig into the numbers and the meaning behind the numbers, that that's when some of your biggest ahas come forward. And so, you know, I think that concept of data disfluency marries up to something that I've experienced both through my client work, but also with, you know, just trying to make sure that um, the company is headed in the right direction and, um, you know, we're not going to get blindsided by, you know, some, some aspect of the company that sneaks up on us that, um, you know, that's been something that I've directly experienced. And then as I've been trying to figure out how to get the rest of the team involved with this, um, the scorecards that discipline we've been following um, has been really nice because um, where if it was just me doing it, I might have slung in all of the numbers week to week, but it's really helpful to have each person responsible for a number every week and have them be having to go back through the data, evaluate the numbers that they're accountable for and have their own data disfluency experience so that, you know, we have a debate about the numbers and it's not just passively fed to us. And I think we're, we're seeing that change in behavior as a result. 
you know, we've got, you know, so we've got one person accountable for kind of the weekly numbers between, you know, each department within the company. And so, but the, the interesting thing about that is some, sometimes, you know, like projects flow between innovation, design, and marketing, you know, intentionally, but like trying to figure out where that dividing line is, uh, where that dividing line actually exists, uh, you know, it's, it's not always clear. And so there's a very healthy debate about um, that happens every week about, you know, like, was this project in the innovation category or did it flow into design? And, um, and so that's helped us just kind of clarify and understand that. And that's not something that would have, those numbers would not have come through clearly if we had just kind of passively coded it in our accounting system and, and let the bookkeeper report on it, you know, like a month after the fact, but we're getting real time information on that. Um, so that's been incredibly helpful for a week to week management of the company on the critical numbers that um, kind of show us how we're doing um, and where things are trending in the right direction and, you know, how we need to adapt as a result. The Net Promoter Score is a popular way to gauge customer happiness. For companies with huge numbers of small customers, you might be able to get away with using a survey tool to understand what percentage of your customers would promote you to their peers. For Ty, this is a metric he would never automate, since he wants to know more about how the client arrived at that number than what the number is. This is an important lesson for anyone whose business relies on a small number of large customers. You don't want to just capture the data, you want to understand the story behind it. The story behind the number is so much more valuable than the number itself. And I think it's a trap for companies to fall into where rather than have their executive team going out and gathering those numbers themselves, they are kind of using a, you know, a pop-up on their uh, website that like somebody just clicks past and the only, and so you get like a barbell approach where you either get people who are deliriously happy or, you know, ready to, uh, you know, Twitter rage on you. Like, um, like that's all you get out of those, like kind of out of those, uh, you know, annoyance surveys. And uh, whereas if you're, you know, like if you have a human being actively seeking out another human being to understand the rich story behind, you know, how well, you know, one of your most important aspects of your business performed, then you get a much more rich detail on that. And yes, you need to record a number, but it's the story that's so much more meaningful. Yeah, no, we have a um, kind of a five question um, kind of discussion guide. And so sometimes it'll be like, you know, like informally where, you know, I might be having a high level conversation with um, uh, somebody who's above the project level. And so I'll get a chance to gather, I'll kind of insert that question into the conversation as a, haha, we're talking net promoter. Um, And, but then, uh, you know, but really get to the, the nitty gritty of how he came to that number. Um, and then, you know, in other cases, you know, we'll have team members call up, uh, clients either, you know, midway through a project or towards the end of the project. And, um, um, or in some cases, a couple of months after, if we've gotten behind and, um, and kind of introduce themselves, walk through the discussion guide. And, um, it's kind of, it's a part of what we do anyways for our qualitative customer research of, you know, do these kinds of interviews to gather feedback. We're just kind of eating our own dog food and practicing what we preach of, you know, the, the degree to which you interact with your customers and get feedback is, um, you know, correlated with the success of your company. 
if you get um, constructive feedback um, and you don't change your behavior in response, then it's you've you've done more damage than good, mm-hmm. right? Because you've been able to collect feedback and there's expectation of change, but if you don't change and, and have a system for responding to it, then, um, you know, you're, you know, like that, that client is now expecting, you know, change that's, they're not seeing happen. And so, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's one of those make a promise, keep a promise opportunities that, you know, it's incumbent upon the team to respond to that and change. If you enjoyed this week's episode, Please leave us some love by giving us a review on iTunes. These reviews help us a lot to reach new listeners who might also enjoy hearing from inspiring leaders like Ty. Huge thanks to Ty Hagler at Trig Innovation for lending us his time this week. If you want to follow along with Ty and the rest of his team, visit their website at triginnovation.com. They have a great newsletter I recommend signing up for, as well as an incredibly insightful blog. I'm Sean Steigerwald, co-founder at Malartu.co. You can find our blog post featuring this episode at millartu.co backslash blog. In next week's episode, I'll sit down with Tom Colopy, a serial entrepreneur who tells us about the various lessons he learned during the turnaround of a struggling venture-backed business. He shares a ton of insightful learnings, so make sure to check back with us next week.